Hey everybody, Zach here. Before we dive into this week's episode, wanted to make sure you saw the important announcement that we made just a few weeks ago. In case you missed it, we launched a new jobs board. It's called Enrollify Jobs, and it's a new place for higher ed marketers and admissions professionals to find their next gig. When we founded Enrollify, we had a pretty ambitious goal. We wanted to be a professional advocate for marketers and admissions professionals throughout their entire career, both inside and also around higher education. And that's why we started this podcast, then a newsletter after that, then we started a review site called Chatter for higher ed vendors, and then an e-course, and then a whole video series, and eventually a full-fledged resource hub. So if you only know us from this podcast, head on over to enrollify.org to explore our plethora of other resources. And what united these educational resources was a pretty simple mission. It was to help enrollment marketers optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. And while great content is and always will be at the heart of what makes Enrollify, well, Enrollify, we realize that if we're serious about accompanying folks like you on your professional journey, we've got to do more than just make great content. And that's really when the idea of Enrollify Jobs was born. Enrollify Jobs is a site where you can browse, favorite, and follow job postings at universities, agencies, and ed tech companies alike. So how is Enrollify Jobs different from other jobs boards? Well, I'm glad you asked. First and foremost, listings are exclusively for admissions and marketing jobs available in and around higher ed. So you can expect to find job titles like Director of Marketing, Admissions Counselor, VP of Enrollment Management at colleges and universities, and also Product Marketing Manager, CMO, Customer Success Manager at a higher ed marketing agency or ed tech company. Number two, every job posting has a salary or salary range. Say goodbye to guesswork about you know what you're actually gonna be paid for this job before you even apply for it, right? And say hello to transparent job listings. We'll say it again. Every job listing that you will find on Enrollify Jobs has a posted salary or salary range. And last but certainly not least, you'll have the ability to sign up to receive notifications about specific job titles, roles, and employers. We make it really easy to be notified when an employer that you follow posts a new job or when a new job title becomes available. A lot has been written in higher ed about the great resignation. In fact, in many ways, right, higher ed has borne the brunt of this seismic shift in how the world rethinks work. But at Enrollify, we care a little bit more about the great reimagination, how higher ed will rethink course modality, how recruitment strategies will become more sustainable, how access to education will become more equitable, and how you, yes, you, will help reimagine the future of higher education. And who knows? Perhaps the next step in that reimagination starts right here on Enrollify Jobs. So if you're searching for your next gig or know somebody who is, send them over to enrollify.org forward slash jobs. Again, that's enrollify.org forward slash jobs. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, I am sitting down with Aaron Stein, who is an account executive at Campus ESP. Welcome to the show, Aaron. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Well, I'm thrilled and, and really just pumped for this conversation because we had a call, I guess it was just last 
just last week, like end of last week, so very uh, not too long ago. And you shared a little bit about your story and how you had found out about uh, the pod and what we're doing with this special series, which is really just focused on careers inside and around higher ed. We're talking with folks who have been in higher ed their entire career. We're talking to folks who have transitioned into higher ed from the agency side of things, and then also folks who have left higher ed for for other pursuits. So I'm thrilled to, uh, first and foremost, that you reached out, and then second, to, to have you uh, on the show. So just, yeah, welcome. I, I'm excited to be here. Thanks. I'm excited to be chatting with you today. <laughs> well, I want to start off actually by asking you to talk a little bit about some of the best and also some of the worst career advice that you've ever received. So you can start wherever, but my suggestion would be let's start with the negative so that we can end on a little bit more of a positive note. But what are some of the tidbits of advice that uh, you've received over the years, welcomed or otherwise, uh, that uh, were both positive and also sort of like negative in terms of how you thought about, you know, the, uh, these words of wisdom as you stepped into your career? The first thing that comes to my mind as far as advice, either career or life advice, is actually from my 12th grade math teacher who told me three days into senior year because I was dropping calculus that I ran the risk of not being successful. Hmm. Um, I was dropping to take creative writing. Uh, and I, you know, just made me think about these moments that you remember and have impact. And I'm glad I went the route that I went. Uh, she was worried that decision would haunt me forever, um, which is a lot of pressure to place on calculus yeah. as a 17-year-old. Um, uh, and that all worked out all right for me. So um, I, I think about <laughs> I think about these moments that that can be unintentionally defining, both in your defiance of that advice or moments that you're you could really have an impression of on someone. I think some of the other maybe more recent career pieces have often been around you're not experienced enough. Hmm. You're not qualified enough. I don't think you should apply for that. And that has come up at different points in my career. Um, and I've often ignored it and, and, and moved ahead and, and sometimes been successful and sometimes not. But uh, any sort of advice that is taking away opportunity before it's even started hmm. is the kinds of things that I, I, I think people need to be really thoughtful about. Hmm. So some some folks when they're applying for a new job like are are very diligent about like reading through every role and responsibility, reading through every requirement, and uh, if they see something that is that even remotely suggests that they might not be qualified for this position, it, it deters them from applying, right? And I'm curious, like, were you have you been like that? Like, are you, are you the kind of like as you've as you you've pursued new opportunities and you know uh, conducted a number of job searches over the years, like? When you are reviewing a job posting, how much attention do you place on sort of the roles, responsibilities, the, the you know requirements versus thinking, okay, well, I have 75% of these. These are probably good enough. It's, it's, it's worth applying anyways. I would recommend that, or I will say, I've often applied the rule when looking at jobs if you've got about two thirds to three fourths of it, it's worth submitting an application. Yeah, yeah. You want to speak to the pieces you don't have um, in that application in your cover letter. But so often that person who's writing that job description is thinking ideal scenario. Yeah. This magic unicorn will appear and this would be great, but they know when they're writing it, that that probably won't happen also. 
Um, so keeping that in mind and uh, just goes back to the idea of, uh, convincing yourself that you won't get a job before you've even tried. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like that. I like the like two thirds rule. It's funny. We, um, we hired a talent search firm to kind of help us fill a, a couple positions here at Enrollify. And what's funny is, you know, this, this talent search firm there, they walk us through, you basically build out these like job personas and you build out sort of like these ideal candidate scenarios. And, uh, and, and w- one of the things that's funny is that some, sometimes like, we'll they'll say, oh, we'll be wondering like why somebody, why our calendars aren't filled with new appointments for people that, you know, want one or more of the jobs that we're offering. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, no one has felt, you know, uh, matched all of your criteria perfectly. And then, and then they'll say, oh, well, here's an, here's an applicant that you could review. And you review that applicant's, you know, um, uh, portfolio and you're like, wow, this looks like an incredibly impressive person. Like, why haven't you sent them through previously? And, the, and they, they'll say, oh, well, you know, you had this one bullet point where you said you wanted five years of, a, of professional experience in this particular category <laughs> and she's only had four, right? And you're like, well, we will take the four if her portfolio looks like this, right? And so <laughs> I think as like, a, as like a general rule of thumb, it's been funny walking through this exercise with this firm because it does, it does really sort of like, I think, just reveal how the people that are throwing these job you know, postings together, they have to be clear and they have to be specific in many contexts. But at the same time, it's like the difference between three years or four years or five years, like, is there really much of a difference? So anyways, for uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I think like words of encouragement out there are like, shoot your shot, right? Like if, if you've got, th- you know, yes, 75% of the, of the things uh, speak to you and your professional experience, it's totally worth applying. Um, anyways, I digress. So (laughs) let's talk a little bit more about you. So you studied design at RIT and you began working in the admissions office. If your LinkedIn profile serves me correctly while you were pursuing, uh, your, your undergraduate degree. So I'm curious to know if at all, how you think this experience influenced your decision to then spend the next 15 or so years working in higher ed. Absolutely. So I started in the Office of Admission on my second day as a college freshman, and I didn't leave until the summer after I graduated, um, working the whole way through as a tour guide. I'll also say that when I was in undergrad, I was also a teaching assistant and a resident advisor. I was fully immersed in the college experience. Uh, at multiple intervals. So um, absolutely, it established for me that this was a place I loved and felt comfortable in, um, excited about working with students and families. Um, And then also, as a part of my admission experience, when I was a senior, they would take a couple seniors to admitted student days in New York City and Boston. And so I got to kind of, quote unquote, go on the road while I was still in college. And I thought that was so cool that we were going somewhere for the week. We were driving, we were ordering appetizers on a, on a credit card that wasn't mine. It just seemed (laughs) wild at the time. Um, but that we were, you know, kind of breaking away from sitting in an office and going out into the world to share more about the university. It was, it was just so exciting that a couple of years later, coming back to that felt really natural. So when you were, during your senior year, had you thought about like, oh, what if I just stayed and continued to work at RIT? Or were you pretty like interested and eager to kind of get out and and work in your field? Or like, did the thought initially 
cross your mind that, hey, what if I just waited a little bit to, you know, pursue a design job and stayed with the admissions team? It absolutely did. Um, that's sort of how I started working there over the summer. So I'd already graduated yeah. and I stayed longer, um, you know, in a part-time capacity. But I think what it came down to is I just invested this time in the study of photography and design and wanted to utilize that, wanted to know, I think I had the sense even then that if I did that, I might never leave. Um, so wanting to take that moment to really explore um, and use what I really specifically invested my studies in. Got it. Got it. So walk us through what happens next. So you graduate, you finish working in admissions over the summer, then what happens? So I ended up moving to Florida. Um, just to put this in context, I was applying for jobs by sending out my portfolio on CDs. Uh, <laughs> to rewind it back a little bit, um, all, you know, sending things through the mail, physical mail, sending through email, um, ultimately got a job as a design and marketing system assistant at a small interior design firm in Florida. Um, and while I was there and starting to learn all of these new things, apply what I learned about retouching and Photoshop and Illustrator, um, I also just wanted to keep expanding. So I applied to teach uh, Photoshop and Illustrator at Community College and they hired me. Huh. So I had this experience of a year of teaching at 23. It was really hard. I hope I was okay. Um, <laughs> but I had to design my own curriculum and my own lesson plans. And so that was in addition to that time period. Um, after, or I would say about two years of that, I applied and was admitted into a Master's of Fine Arts program in photography and ended up moving to Chicago for about a year. Um, and ultimately that program wasn't right for me in part because I thought I wanted to be a college professor mm. and that just wasn't quite resonating. And I was also, I was pursuing a fine arts program to achieve that end and it felt a little off balance. But I also, in that time period, helped my institution launch a school store of student artwork. I apl again applied, this is a bit of a theme, I guess, to a d another part-time job where I then um, spent the summer uh, teaching photography in London at this, this camp. And somehow all of those things converged to a friend saying they had uh, an apartment available in New York City and did I want to move in with them. And I said, sure. And I applied <laughs> admission jobs felt familiar at that point. Um, and I had struggled in some ways with design work and it's a lot of computer time. A lot of um, retouching is, is really, yeah. of course, it's really digital. And I love talking to people. Hmm. So I sort of thought back to the, man, I love that time that I got to talk to those students and family members. I'm gonna apply to a bunch of New York schools and was ultimately hired by Parsons School of Design at the new school in 2009. Wow. Well, thank you for walking us through that. That's what's funny is in each of these posts, it, it, I, I feel like the like design remained a part of everything, right? Like when you're working and you're helping a school set up a design shop, like on campus, when uh, you know you, you know you're teaching design at a community college. So it's interesting to see sort of how like your your love for design was in in many contexts like uh, 
uh, presented like within the context of of higher ed um, and and utilized right in in maybe like a slightly different way than you would have thought during your undergrad yeah. uh, experience, but but still like you know a, a big part of you right. And it was it's, it's interesting to see sort of like how you wove these two loves you know together uh, in in a relatively unique way. So. I'm curious, you, you know, you were at, was, is it pronounced, uh, Brevard or Brevard Community College? Brevard. Brevard. Okay. Thank you. Um, so you were at Brevard and then you were at Columbia College, Chicago, and then the School of Cinema and Performing Arts. And I'm curious, are there like a story or two from each of these, uh, these posts, uh, that were particularly memorable that you think sort of had some sort of influence, uh, or maybe even significant influence in, you know, your professional career and trajectory you know overall or, or even just like how you think today like were there any were there any moments in each of these jobs where you sort of like harken back to as oh that was the time that's when I learned this or that's when I was really sure that what I wanted to do was that I think that the first thing that comes to mind was that I it, those experiences sort of capitalized on my ability and freedom to say yes. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that uh, School of Cinema and Performing Arts, which is a a summer camp for high school students focused on the arts. uh, Originally, when I was hired, it was to go to Vermont. And they called me two and a half, three weeks before the program was supposed to start and said, hey, could you go to London instead? (laughs) Of course, I was like, oh, my gosh, of course I can. But just the fact that I was like, yes, Hmm. yes, that is I will I will do that. And I don't quite know what that means yet, but I am excited and committed to doing that. Um, I think that is woven through a lot of the opportunities I've had, that the thing you say yes to ultimately leads to something later down the line that you can't see it. And I'm actually really, um, you know, really thinking about what you said about this intersection of education and design, I feel so fortunate that so many of these different places and experiences that I've touched have kind of all made sense together, Mm. but they maybe didn't make sense in the moment that I was making that choice or that decision to move forward. Mm. Yeah. And And I would say, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think like, and you're to circle back on your what you said just a moment ago about like your ability to say yes, right? Like that, I feel like that that in and of itself um, is it just says a lot about you and you and your character, right? Like as opposed to oh well, this I wasn't I was planning on being in Vermont. I don't know. Like, can you? Is there any way I could stay and do this in Vermont? They they would have probably figured something else, you know, something else out for you. But like, I think that you know, being being courageous enough to say yes to these opportunities, especially early on in your, in your career, is exactly what you need to be doing. Um. Anyway, sorry. Go back to what you were saying. I, I don't want to cut you off there. No, I, I was just thinking. Some of this connects to me back to career advice and. Hmm. While they didn't mean it probably as career advice at the time, my parents really encouraged me first to figure out what I was interested in, excited about, passionate about. And that provided a framework for my education and professional experiences throughout. So I think so much of my own professional career hasn't been tied to the search for a title or a particular thing Mm. so much as these are the things I love and enjoy and because that self-awareness was cultivated early on, I have a, a map to go back to, into to to help make these choices. Yeah, 
even though the jobs themselves, the titles, the types of places, they have overlap, but they don't they don't need to go in, uh, you know, one foot in front of another. I can kind of jump to the side at different intervals. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like that. And what, what's funny, I feel like there's a lot. I, I read some article, I think HBR put it out uh, maybe three or four weeks ago. And they were talking about how, like, why it's terrible advice to tell 20-somethings that they should follow their passions. Uh, and and basically, uh, the the author of the piece was, the point that they were making was like, look, oftentimes, right, you, you ha- as, a, as a young professional, right, like you do kind of need to grind for a little bit in order to figure out first and foremost, like, what is it that I'm actually passionate about? Maybe you like something or maybe you're interested in sort of yeah. like a, a particular trajectory or career, or, or maybe you're interested in a particular title. But like, as you get into the actual working world, you might figure out that actually, you know what, maybe I, maybe I like talking to people. Maybe I don't want to be pushing pixels like on a computer, like, you know, uh, yes. eight hours a day. <laughs> maybe that's actually important to me, right? Ha- had someone a- asked you that in, in college, right? Or let alone in high school before you went to college, you might've given a really different answer to what are you passionate about? So anyways, I don't know that I agree with everything that the, the author was saying, but what's interesting from what I can gather from your story is, it was you were you were incredibly honest about like okay what is it that I'm interested in right now and how might I be able to like find some sort of gig that would scratch that itch like it's not like you went you know zero to sixty or it's it's not like you completely left higher education and decided to go you know study rocket science instead like the, these these stepping stones <laughs> made sense even sort of this move to like go do this design camp in in London it it like it was congruent right with kind of where you were at and the things that you're good at, uh, even though sort of there was a, you know, some pizzazz sort of sprinkled in there as well. So I think like, <laughs> I think that that balance, right? Like the balance between, okay, what am I actually passionate about? First of all, you, you ha- it takes a while to really figure that out. And like, can I apply that in a way that makes money? If so, right, what is the best way to, to, to do that? And I think that, that that is the hardest thing for all of us to figure out. Definitely. So Absolutely. Um, in March of 2009, you became an admissions counselor at, uh, the new school, Parsons School of Design, and you then spent over, again, if your LinkedIn serves me correctly, uh, a decade there, and you worked your way up to associate VP of enrollment. And so that's a, that's a long time to spend in one place. And that's quite the, you know, the growth trajectory over, over that decade. So I'd love for you to just share for, for those tuning in a few vignettes that you think best encapsulate your professional development and your, your career advancement at the new school. Absolutely. Um, so, and I'll, I'll add the clarity, whether it makes the podcast cut or not, that one of the things many people don't know is the new school is the university name, school about 10,000, Middle Manhattan. Parsons School of Design is one of the schools within the new school. So I might use those Thank a little you. interchangeably. Yes, yes. Thank you for that clarification. Um, <laughs> after uh, 12 years of explaining that to uh, students, parents, and family members, I still feel the instinct to <laughs> uh, make sure everyone knows um, that's a little bit of the history. But um, one of the, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm going to keep saying this, but, uh, when I, when I think about how I began there, um, it, I was so, I remember calling my parents like the first couple months and being like, I found the coolest job. Huh. Like, this is so exciting. I'm talking to students. I'm reviewing portfolios. I'm combining all of these other pieces of my background together. This is awesome. And I'm also excited in this moment. And I, again, it's like the, not the kind of thing you can put on paper, 
but I'm traveling mm. and that's breaking up my week. It's changing the cadence of not necessarily about being in an office nine to five, but like you need to be getting on, getting on a plane on Sunday. Maybe I have to be somewhere else and, and getting to meet people from all over the country and all over the world was so ultimately life-changing for my worldview and understanding of how others think, process, absorb. So there was that initial excitement. I did also have another yes moment in my first couple of months in that we were hosting an open house uh, on campus. And the person who was supposed to speak at the open house from the admission team didn't feel very well. Hmm. And they asked if I could step in again, with not a lot of notice. And I said, yes. And that was the first time I spoke to hundreds of people. And I was a little nervous. I, I you know, I, I, I don't jump into some of these things just being like, yes, it's me. Here we are. <laughs> I'm more like, I can do it. Yes, yeah. I will do it. Yeah. Um, it may not be perfect, but I'm going to make this happen. And I ended up speaking at, at large events for over a decade. Wow. And in that moment, you don't know that saying yes is going to translate into, you know, 10 years. But I think that attitude has always served me well. Um, I'll also say that, um, you know, just other moments, I think while I was at the new school that made it possible to stay for so long was it's, it's a school of many schools that shifted and changed while I was there. So whether it was the migration from reviewing on paper, um, literally scribbling notes with a pen on a green sheet of blank paper on my physical folder to translating that into digital file review or shifting our internal structure um, or adding new programs, it never really felt like the same place. Huh, yeah. So that that's something that really helped. I mean, absolutely, you know, the path to take on new responsibilities and additional jobs, my, my timing really helped um, each each time I thought maybe it was time to go on to something new, time to have a new experience. I was incredibly fortunate that that position became available. Someone left, something shifted. So that's not always typical in higher ed as well, that the, the path can sort of open up um, in the timing that you need. Mm. So um, it, it really, for me, you know, made it, made it possible to keep growing, learning, evolving at a place that was often doing a lot of shifting. Yeah. And it was really very, um, uh, very felt, it felt very entrepreneurial in many ways that there was an openness to trying new things, to experimenting a little bit that, um, for a long time was, was really sustaining. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what I love, what I love about what you're uh, bringing up right now, Aaron, too, is that I think one of the things that gets overlooked in this uh, greater conversation around just careers in higher ed is that there there is a lot of change, right? There's there is a lot of opportunities to to do new things, even within the context of like your same role, right? Like the same title, you, you might still be an admissions counselor, but being an admissions counselor when your institution is going through some dramatic change such as a re-architecture of like systems is very different than when you know you've you're working in slate and you have been for five years and it's sort of like cut and dry very same true. old same old right you're already set up or or you know when you're traveling like it, you might be there there might be this these new programs where you're uh, all of a sudden focused on international uh, student recruitment in parts of asia that you weren't 
you know, focused on previously. Now you have the opportunity. You're still an admissions counselor, but now you have the opportunity to go yes. and fly to, you know, uh, uh, Beijing and recruit there, whatever it might be, right? And so, like, I think I think that there is something to be said for sort of, like, the diversity of, like, responsibilities that you can uh, take advantage of within the context of one role. And that that is, that, not that that's exclusive to higher ed, but that isn't something that you always, that you'll find in sort of like any professional pathway. So there is sort of like a, a fair amount of like diversity and sort of like experience that I think these these different roles, uh, you know, can hold, which I think that you're, you're speaking to. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. It kind of circles us back to where we started about job descriptions, that uh, your background, you could be an admission counselor many different places, and it can mean a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you, after you were an admissions counselor, you were the assistant director for special programs for almost a year uh, before taking the associate director of undergrad admissions role. So talk to us a little bit about like, what what was the uh, assistant director for special programs role? And was there anything particularly interesting uh, that you learned during that season that has like helped you to date? That was one of a few times that I helped write my own job description over <laughs> my career. <laughs> I love so, it. Uh, I had had started to become immersed in some of our exchange programs and partnerships overseas and uh, a new partnership with students coming to study in the States out of Brazil um, was coming into play. So I ended up pulling all of those together. I mean, individually sort of assigned to those things, but to ultimately say, this is a different role. Hmm. Um, and thankfully there was the flexibility in the moment to make that happen. Um, and then, uh, you know, that time and there was many, many of those things carried with me to the next role. There had been um, a lot of change in our office around that year in particular. Um, uh, it had been an admission team that had been there for a couple of years and several of them went on to new opportunities and um, and essentially opened again a door for me to take on greater responsibility in yeah. that moment. So... This is really around the time too. I was for many years. I was very much an international road warrior, um, traveling to East Asia, um, spending a lot of weeks on the road um, during that time period. But I will also say it, it just kind of keeps evolving. Like the more I talk about it, when when I was an associate director, I actually focused on um, we had a, an adult career changer pathway. Huh. Um, and I ended up owning sort of that student population in that moment. Um, and that was another focus. I, I think oftentimes I would look um, and, and see where the greatest need was and where um, I could dive in um, and create new things. Um, it, that is very ex exciting to me. Yeah. And so um, when some of those, those in-between spaces are identified, um, taking that moment to offer a solution uh, rather than a, what do we do now? To yeah. say, here's what I think we could do if you're open to looking at this. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that just speaks so much to what you were talking about earlier, which is this really this entrepreneurial spirit, right? That I think that you've had over the course of your career, which is like, okay, where's their opportunity? Uh, okay. Or, or where's their problem? And how might I go about, you know, being solutions oriented as opposed to sort of just like adding to like the void of questions around, well, yeah, 
there's the problem. What do we do about it? Uh, I don't know. Like, should you do something? Should I do something? Like, I feel like the people that that do dive in and and capitalize on that need tend to be the people that are just you know most successful later on in life. And or it, it's really I think just about like building confidence too, and being like, okay, well, if no one's going to take this opportunity. I can, and no one else is vying for it. So if it doesn't work out so well, well, hey, at least I tried, right? Which is more than than some others can say. And so I think it's it's neat when people, especially sort of in systems or in situations that are at least stereotyped for being a little bit, you know, bureaucratic and and challenging to navigate at times, when there are opportunities to be entrepreneurial, I think that the people that take those opportunities benefit greatly later on down the road. Um. And speaking of new opportunities, uh, this this past July, you did something that many in many like veterans, career veterans in higher ed might sort of like deem to be a little crazy. You left your post as AVP of enrollment at the new school to become an ex- account executive at Campus ESP, which is for those who are not aware, an ed tech company that focuses on parent and family communication and engagement to help universities impact enrolled student success, enrollment student success, retention, and annual giving. Whew, that was a mouthful. Um, but uh, <laughs> lots of work going on there. Um, so walk us walk us through like the story behind this move. So when did the idea of leaving higher ed first begin to percolate? And what were the noteworthy milestones along the way that gave you confidence that it really was time to do something new? Yeah. Um, you know, I was smiling as you read the whole introduction because I, I definitely had the sense as I was doing it, like, this might be crazy. This might be a crazy thing, but I cannot get this out of my head that I need to look for a new direction. Um, you know, up until this point, we've talked a lot about different steps, like a lot, you know, pivoting and excitement and change and new opportunities. And um, I served as director of admission for almost four years at Parsons School Design and was an AVP of enrollment for almost three, which obviously came with a lot more challenges, a lot more bigger scope, bigger scale. And, you know, I and I also, you know, I don't I don't think we need to talk about the pandemic too much and how that's changed work in the course of this. That is certainly layered in there as well. Um, But I don't think for me that it was one particular moment or one thing, but it was the moment that I could verbalize that every day professionally, I felt like I was using my weaknesses rather than my strengths. Hmm. And for Hmm. a long time, it was easy to tell myself that this was a part of growth that I needed to evolve, that I needed to delegate, that I needed to sort of just stick with it and, and figure this out. But then I just got this idea that what if the answer was that I actually want to do something very different. Hmm. And once that was in my head, there was sort of no going back. Um, I was sort of thinking I need to talk to other people. I need to understand more what's up, what's out there. And the reason that I, I was specifically interested in ed tech is I was deeply involved in a CRM implementation hmm. for the year and a half to two years beforehand, which was so humbling so exhausting, um, but also so key in my understanding of the power technology has to make things better or, man, be a real big pain. Um, So that sort of opened my eyes to think, how 
is there something or way I can translate my experience and background into a higher education solution that could touch more than one university? That's Those are some of the ideas that are in my head of how do I think more broadly? How do I get out there to work on something that is going to help lots of different schools or the structure of higher education? Um, and it, as you probably figured out by now, I, I didn't think I would make that happen by just stepping to to the side a little bit that I was going to jump and figure out to really make transformation happen. Um, I, I also think it's important, like through everything I'm sharing, like being able to take a leap, being able to take this type of risk comes with an incredible amount of privilege too, that I have a lot of privilege and luck layered into all of these steps. Um, but hopefully that's like a foundation of just sort of like where my head was at of saying, I want to work with the things I'm, I feel like I'm really strong with. And for me, being at, being towards the top of a large organization, managing managers, that wasn't happening. And I was trying to make it happen. And I, I, you know, not that it couldn't say it couldn't happen again, but in that time, in that moment, it wasn't, it wasn't right. It wasn't resonating. Yeah. That I mean, that's incredible self awareness, obviously. But I I love what you're what you're getting at too, which is I think this idea that uh, the way that things are structured um, in in many contexts, not just inside uh, higher ed, but it's like as you grow, as you develop, like you should be wanting that next step, right? And oftentimes that that next step eventually starts coming with managing uh, management of people, right? And then then you're managing managers, right? And, and and I think that we're taught like, hey, as you excel more and more and more in your role, this is just inevitable. Like this is just this is just what happens when you want to move up in a space, right? And I think what's neat about what you're what you realized was like, wait a second, I really like doing this thing. I want to spend more of my time doing things that do align with my strengths and less of my time doing things that align with my weaknesses. And the next step right above me looks like spending time, you know, maybe doing things, spending even more time doing things that I uh, am weak at, or, or just don't forget even weakness, just don't enjoy, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not thriving. I'm not like in, you know, the proverbial, like sort of like a state of flow uh, when, when doing these particular things. Yeah. And I think that, that that's just incredibly like hard awareness for people, I think to, to own because I, we're, society or, or whoever, right, helps is often sort of sending this message that we should want more. We we want the bigger title, like we want the VP, we want the director, uh, you know, titles or whatever it might be. We want that we want to be in the C suite, like that's the end goal, right? Um, and it's interesting when it's like, well, if that comes with a bunch of roles and responsibilities that I'm not particularly interested in, or maybe not even that good at, uh, do I really want this? Like, is, is Am I going to be happier there? So like, how did you, I, I'm sure you had these voices like running through your head, right? Like, so like what, what sort of self-talk did you do? Like, how, how did you, how did you convince yourself that, Hey, you know what? If you let go of the VP role, like that's okay. Like that's not a bad thing. You haven't failed in some, in some way, shape or form, or was that not really a, an issue for you? Oh no. I mean, that, that is, that is some of like the, the darker self-doubt of all of this, right? That one facing it and feeling like is not wanting to take a step up or even wanting to take a step back is is that failure am i failing the people that believed in me mm. to get me to this point um that was something that weighed with me for a while um 
And I think it just, you know, there's, you know, as, as I was sort of processing all of this, just the realization too, that there is, there was a point in my career that I, I never feared a Monday ever, you know, that I was, I was always excited to dive into what was next. And that had shifted at some point into something that I, I didn't, I didn't want to spend the next couple of decades feeling that way, Mm. even though it, you know, it came, could come for me, you know, that wasn't the right move, even though you're looking at it and saying, but that's a title and salary. And I, I should, I should want that. Like, shouldn't, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Doesn't that mean, isn't that step, isn't that ladder, is that next rung, isn't that success? Isn't, isn't that right? Um, it's also hard to admit, like I worked with the most amazing people, Mm. um, both alongside me and for me who were incredible and feeling like, um, in a, in a way that like, if I couldn't be my best self for them, that's, that's some of what I think also sort of starts to tip it forward is, is I don't want to be someone who is sort of carrying all this and not, um, you know, you know, not wanting to do this work when it is so integral and important to their success too. Mm. That's, uh, that, uh, that's, that's such a great awareness too. And I think that, you know, something that not everyone, not everyone is, you know, mature enough to kind of like think through or, or consider, but, um, I, I love that. So what was hardest about like the job search? Like what was, you know, had, had you looked at job it had been a while at least like over a decade since you had looked for jobs at least presumably outside of higher ed so what was different about this job search uh did you learn anything new along the way that you know was especially helpful to you uh just uh, what what was it like for you to seriously consider your next gig the most difficult part was simultaneously interviewing for roles while feeling like i had to justify why I had applied and why I would want to do this. Hmm. So you're bringing back all of that fear and self-doubt when someone's like, yeah, but like, are you going to be bored? Are you, are you sure you did it? You, you managed a lot of people like imply, implying either I was going to come for their job within like four months or that um, I didn't really know what I was doing and hmm. I wouldn't last long. Um, so it's hard to like, be in that space of, of interviewing and talking to people and also facing your own self-doubt in that same interview being asked those types of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I, you know, I think those people have, you know, they have the best intentions in that moment too, but that was challenging to face. And it was also, you know, the other challenge is just, there's so much out there, different types (laughs) of companies, different directions you should go, like how, how, broad to go, how deeply to research and be more frugal with, you know, kind of putting your name out there. Um, I will say the best part was the, just like the help and collaboration from those I trusted to, to really listen to what I was trying to describe and and why I, I wanted to look for something else. And then their willingness to connect me to a, a wider, a wider web to start having both conversations, interviews, and and just, you know, kind of, kind of gain some ground and gain some footing and understanding of even what could potentially be a good fit for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And, uh, I think it's really important too, that 
I, I don't know if you have to do this like daily or something, but like writing down when, when you're, when you're job searching, like, why are you doing this? Like, just so you have yes. like, like <laughs> total clarity, like this is, remember, this is why, this is why I'm doing this. This is what I'm good at. I can do this. There's a lot of opportunity out there. If I don't get that second interview, it's not the end of the world. It's not a failure. Like I haven't done something wrong, right? Like greater things are yet to come. Like I imagine just doing this, going through this process, like you have to, you have to affirm yourself a lot, right? Like you got, you got to remind yourself like, no, 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 like you, you are great at these things, right? Like, or, Hey, this was just not the right gig for you, at least right now. It doesn't mean it won't ever be the right gig, but right now, you know, let's, let's look somewhere else. So, um, you know, what, what, what sort of exercises or frameworks did you use to like keep yourself motivated and excited? Um, you know, cause I, cause I imagine there were opportunities that, you know, maybe you really wanted or thought that you wanted and then ultimately didn't take or turned down or, or weren't offered. Like what, how did you think about um, keeping yourself sort of like motivated and engaged and excited throughout this process? Yeah, I, I definitely try to keep in mind that whether it was a conversation or, you know, a very first, first touch interview that, this experience has to be as much about me gaining understanding and learning through this process as it is about, I will get this job. Wow. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I say it's, it's, it is not easy to do. Like definitely um, there's a lot of moments of feeling disheartened and um, like, maybe this is, maybe this is silly, you know, looking at also, you know, as this is happening, like my other job is still going full throttle. Yeah. We're in the yeah. middle of pandemic there is so much to do. So you're also trying to carve out like your, your little slices to separate your brain and focus over here. And I will say that sometimes encouragement came from really surprising places. Um, I had an interview at a huge global corporation that ultimately wasn't the right fit. And I could kind of sense it on the call, but the interviewer was so thoughtful and gracious. And we had such a great conversation and she sent me two sentences later on when I didn't get the role that was really encouraging and had some direction. And it was, it just made me think of someone who's interviewed a lot of people over the years, like how much that meant to me yeah. and how well it was handled. And it, it gave me a great impression of the company. It gave me um, a great impression of her. And, um, so there's some little sparks throughout, huh. I think that, um, to have just a great conversation with someone, those are the moments I could carry and say, okay, that was, I, I, I talked to someone they weren't in higher ed, but we really connected and we had, um, a kinship and understanding and some of our goals and outlooks. And I need to, I need to absorb that and, and kind of push onward. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Do you, do you remember what those, uh, couple sentences were? Or, or at uh, least the general just, gist, yeah. The general gist was just, you know, hey, didn't think you were right from this role, but I loved our conversation. You might want to look in this direction huh. um, of ed tech next and let me know if, you know, you ever need something in the in the future. I actually told her when I got the job I have now, I messaged her. Wow. And she sent me this, like, really kind reply back. I just <laughs> that was a pivotal moment for me. Thank you so much. Wow, that's And it awesome. was just, you know. It, it just, it makes, it makes me think about the impact that you can have as an interviewer as much as you can as, as a seeker. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. 
So, you know, one of the things that higher ed has like this, like bad rap for is, is this idea that you, you often have to like wait for someone to leave or to retire before you can, you know, move up. And in your, in your own story, you talked about sort of like positions kind of becoming available and, and that's why you were able to sort of, you know, one of the reasons at least why you were able to uh, step into those roles. Um, so if you're like a young, you know, passionate, driven admissions counselor or, or marketing coordinator, and you're working in higher ed right now at this, at this moment, and, and you, you hear these things, you're, you're new to the space, it can, it can kind of feel like there's like not a lot of professional growth potential in the industry, or in some ways it kind of feels like you're gambling, right? Like, well, uh, mm-hmm. it can, should I give this one more year, two more years, you know, so-and-so maybe <laughs> Dr. So-and-so, maybe it's time yeah. for her to retire. And then, and then I can get right. And it can be sort of defeating, especially sort of like early on in your career. And, you know, higher ed is this, you know, beautiful industry that needs a lot of help and a lot of support and a lot of really smart, motivated people working within the context of higher ed to usher, especially right now, to usher in sort of this like new era of education, right? The world has like totally changed and, um, you know, higher ed needs to adapt with it. And so... That, that's a very long way of saying like what like what are your thoughts on this like how can or, or should higher ed change if at all in order to retain and reward talent and and maybe a helpful way of like thinking through this question is is there anything like the new school or another institution could have done to to make you want to stay in higher ed yeah I mean you're definitely you're hitting on upon something really really huge here, which is, I think it's something institutions of higher education as a whole are going to have to change is this idea that this is the hierarchy. It's locked. There's no flexibility. These are the roles we have, the titles we have, and that's that. Um, There, there has to be a way to create growth. And I know, you know, I, I agree. I think this has been slow moving, Um, but ultimately that you will continue to see the type of turnover that you come to expect, unfortunately, in some of these places, because there isn't another option left. I think one of the things that helped me a little along the way, and I don't know if this is necessarily encouraging, but at least it's a different approach is one of the things that I did at a lot of moments throughout my career is I, I would look for jobs and I would interview, not, not always with great gusto, but talking to other people in that context many times helped me stay. Mm, Um, It helped me at least create context for the things that I had going on that were really great. In addition to understanding just the market institutions, what else was out there. Um, I think for me personally, um, I was, I was hungry to go out and experience a different something. And that is, you know, there's, there's definitely, it would definitely be quite unusual to sort of shift in a different way from a leadership level within an institution to something that's not. Um, I will also say as someone who was interested in figuring out what it would be like to be an individual contributor again, Mm. that is not something that higher ed has a lot of space for. Um, that, that, the latter, the steps in front of you are based off of management. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm curious to see, I don't know if it will shift, but I think that's a really key difference that your title salary often comes with how many people work within your structure. And that is just not always the case outside of higher ed in many instances. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's a very interesting insight. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see, again, how like more progressive institutions adapt and, and try to retain, you know, talent. And th- there's, there's, you know, this other phenomenon, right, with the, the big elephant in the room, which is that in many contexts in, in higher ed, like, you got to be in many, for many roles, you, you have to be on campus, right? And that we're now living in, in a world where mm, like, uh-huh. so many people have freedom and flexibility of like, where and where, you know, where and when they, they work. And that's not that that's, you know, for many good reasons, um, maybe some some not so great reasons as well. That's, that's not always possible in the context of an institution. So I, I feel like there's also this other thing that the industry as a whole has to figure out, which is like, okay, how do we become more attractive? Like, how, how do we sort of like, there's, there's so much talk about yes. the great resignation, and specifically about how it's affecting higher ed. How do we change that narrative? Like, what, what does it look like to, you know, be be a place where pe- pe- people in college right now, like want to go and work at a college or university, like because it they have the opportunity to change the way that people think, or they have the opportunity to change the way that people learn. And h- how do we how do we like, you know, inspire a next generation where that's exciting. And I think one of the ways we start that is is by kind of figuring out this structure, right? Like, what does professional development and growth at a college or university look like? How might we have roles that are a little bit more individual contributor focused, at least, even if not exclusive? You know, why why not like do some brainstorming around what that could look like, even if it's not going to be possible for the next five years for, you know, all, all these reasons? What, what would it look like if if something like that could come into existence? It makes me think, Zach, um, that this is also attached to the structures within HR and universities, which are also often stretched super thin. Mm. And so the weight of hiring job descriptions can lie within everyone, you know, kind of a shared, a shared process. Um, and so when I think about how large universities are structurally, I, I think so many of them don't have the people in their human resources department to yeah. really look at that very closely and really make a difference in some of that onboarding and retention piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really great observation as well. Um, so, you know, one, one of the things that we, I've worked with a number of grad programs over the years and helped do some consulting with them. Um, and one of the one of the primary personas that a lot of grad programs uh, target is this sort of like career changer persona, right? It's somebody that's been doing something for 10, 15 years and they're ready to do something, you know, new and different, you know, not, you know, someone unlike, too unlike you, right? Um, and this is like a, this yep. is a persona that so many different grad programs, regardless of field, are, are interested in sort of attracting. Um, so if there's someone, you know, tuning in to the show today and they've been working in higher ed for 10 to 20 years and for the, all the reasons that we've talked about or, or other reasons, they're interested in sort of like doing something new and and taking that leap to move outside of higher ed. Like, are there any pro tips or frameworks or processes that you'd recommend folks kind of think through as they begin their search that were, you know, especially helpful to you. It could even be like a book or like a podcast or any sort of resource that you tapped into to help, uh, you know, act as a, as a friend, if nothing else on your journey to something new. (laughs) It's, I think definitely figuring out what your bigger goals and themes are is the essential place to start. Um, so if it's just, it's wanting to help students and families, to help educational structures, to have creativity, to have um, 
maybe a schedule that's, uh, you know, a bit more flexible, like putting those on paper and ranking it by your musts and your likes. Mm. It's, it's just a place to begin. Um, I would also add in that career change, are there particular skills associated with that? So is it something you can deep dive on your own, whether it's design or coding, or is it something that maybe it's an investment, but doing a program is going to take you there faster and get you back out and in, um, re- you know, kind of just move you through to that goal yeah. in a way that um, would be a, a better path. Um, the podcast I wish I'd found, um, in addition to this one, of course, uh, <laughs> in this new segment, uh, before I made my uh, shift was um, uh, Jamie Hoffman and Tom Stutter's Pivoting Out of EDU podcast, um, which is a great way to sort of dip your toe in and hear a lot of interviews about others who have have made shifts mm. um, related to higher ed. It's kind of like a good gateway to also before maybe you're you know, if you're afraid to start asking the question and putting yourself out there in that way, at least uh, hearing some of those reflections um, to create a create a base for the, uh, you know, that maybe the search to come. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I want to circle back real quickly to something you said earlier, and then I think you just touched on it again here. But is this idea of, you know, what is your why? Like, what, why are you interested in making this sort of pivot or doing something new? And I think there's this, there's this. A lot of people, like when you talk to folks, especially who work in admissions in higher ed, it's like, well, I love people. Like, I love helping people. I love the students. Like, I love, I love meeting. I love relationships. Right. It's a, there's a lot of relationship management involved in higher ed. Right. And that, yeah. and, and I think that a temptation um, that can creep in to folks' minds is like, oh, well, the the best way to help students is to work in this particular context. And that might be true for yeah. some individuals, but as you were mentioned earlier, you you actually can have more of an impact in this in this role, right? You have the potential to reach more families and more students than you would have, you know, had you you know, retained the position in, in your current post at the new school simply because of the, you know, breadth and depth of, of campus ESP. So it, I think it, it's a helpful reminder to for folks that love education, right, and love sort of like the mission-driven components of working in higher ed that there are other opportunities out there still that still touch education where you could have just as much influence if, if, if maybe not even more. Um so w- was that sort of like a helpful thing for you to kind of keep in mind or retain as you as you thought about these other pursuits? It absolutely was. And I think also connected to that piece might be something I, I started to do is similar to kind of how you've structured this podcast. Like, what are my key moments hmm. throughout my life that felt that that was a story or something significant that is resonating? And how do I move forward with that? And so for me... Um, one of the reasons that I love the work we do at Campus ESP, which really focuses on parents in connectivity to, to institutions on behalf of their student success, is that my, my dad went to college as I was growing up. And so they had this sort of very hands-on approach to my own college experience because they, they he just lived it. He'd just yeah. done it. Huh. And so, so often I think about you know, how my parents sat me down when I was applying to college and had a spreadsheet of what my student loan payments would be per month before I ever went. And they really dove in and said, here's how much you're borrowing. This is what you're doing. Here's how these other funds are coming in. They, they weren't 
afraid of it. It wasn't hidden from me. Mm. It was in front of me. And I think about how much that impacted my understanding of like the value of what I was about to do. This is also almost 20 years ago now. So it was very <laughs> different pricing wise back then, but it, that their fearlessness of having these conversations and their dedication to the depth of, of what they were going to learn about this process as, um, as parents who kind of both knew more because my dad had just gone through school, but also, um, you know, had, were kind of new to it because yeah. they recently gotten degrees. Yeah. So when I think about that, I think that I work on a company that helps to better communicate with and educate your parent population to help your student success. Like that, that is exciting all on its own. And yeah. that is different than saying, you know what, I'm going to apply for a sales role. Instead, like looking for identity and kinship and understanding in the company product platform that you're going to invest your energy into, that's, that's exciting. And yeah. that's where like, if you can find those pieces and look for those stories, um, I, I think that's where some of this fulfillment also really kind of, kind of conjoins and comes together. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm glad you shared that story. Cause it, it, what that also just, you know, ties, uh, uh, ties together sort of is this, is this, that that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, oh, well, hey, yeah, well, in that context, in light of like your own story, this role does make a lot of sense. It, it sort of is that next step in your right. in your professional journey, which is which is great. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad that that story came to mind. Um, so my, my my final question for you is uh, over email. You uh, you emailed me, you you sent me um, this nice little tidbit that I had to touch on here. So your husband is a brewer and you guys have a beer pouring side hustle of sorts, um, which is, by the way, just <laughs> really, really cool. And I'm super jealous. Um, I'm a I'm a big IPA guy. So um, I, I, I love craft beer. So anyways, we'll have to we'll awesome. have to drink one later at some point uh, if, we, if we get the opportunity to meet in person. But um, so you, you you had this line in this email where you said, hey, you know, pouring beer at uh, beer tasting events. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of similarity between kind of college fairs and, and beer tasting events. So flush this out for us a little bit more. Um, <laughs> what are the what are these similarities? Absolutely. So um, my husband has a brewery called Alewife here in, in Queens, New York. And over his brewing career, I've accompanied him to many a beer festival, beer tasting event to pour. And what I would say is that at both beer events and college fairs, you're behind a table. You're sort of awkwardly making eye contact. Do you want to talk to me? I'm interested, not too interested. And then <laughs> they come over to ask a few questions and there's a rattling off of responses, whether it's, we're a university of 10,000 students in the middle of Manhattan, or this is an IPA dry hopped with Azaka Centennial and El Dorado. Uh, you, are, you are repeating those things for several hours and interacting with people asking getting asked new questions. Um, uh, beer events also have beer at them. So the tenor is, of course, slightly different, but there <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's maybe just another area where I'm like, eh, these are, these are, I'm using a similar skill set right here uh, in, in creating connectivity quickly um, and responding to questions, uh, interest and excitement. So I like it. Um, I, I might it. have to, I might have to ship you some beer after this. I know, um, I know, I know. Gladly. <laughs> 
Well, Aaron, this has been uh, just absolutely amazing. I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your story with us. And, um, you know, I, I hope that this, I'm sure that the story has been helpful for folks tuning in who, again, might be considering their own sort of next move. So if people do want to get in touch with you or ask you any follow-up questions, what's the best way for them to do so? Absolutely. I, I definitely keep a close eye on my LinkedIn. Um, so when this goes up, uh, would, you know, if, whether it's questions about creating, changing careers, whether you're far along or just starting, I, I really valued so much the help that I had in the conversations leading up to this sort of big change and pivotal moment for me that I would, I would absolutely love to talk to anyone who wants to. Wonderful. And we can drop a quick link to your uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes too. So if you're listening to this, you can just scroll down and click on over and connect with Aaron. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, This has been awesome. And it's really been helpful too to be able to reflect upon uh, all of these steps over the, the last many years. If you are an enrollment marketer, working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast please reach out directly to me at zach z-a-c-h at enrollify.org we sincerely look forward to working with you to make enrollify the most trusted go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there